What we use every day says a lot about us. Now, think about something you threw away being discovered a century later. What stories would it tell? Tonight, we're digging up some of Cincinnati's history with a story about violence and concealment discovered in a privy shaft. Welcome to another wonderful episode of the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities presents the Hometown Haunts Podcast. I am your host, Kat Cloco, and tonight with me are Christina Wald and Jen Kohler. They'll be on shortly. First, social media. You can follow us at Cin Cabinet Curio on Twitter, at Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities on Instagram, and every year, ooh, well, yeah, every year. We've gone on for over a year. But every week, we also want to hear your ghost stories, creepy cryptids, and interesting fringe history from your neck of the woods. And you can send that to hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com. And you can join our Facebook group at Hometown Haunts, and you can share your stories and chat with people in real time on Facebook. We're an official podcast that can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you, Jen. Find us by searching Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities, and please rate and review. You, nah, review us there so other spooky history lovers just like you can find us link in the show notes and for you, those of you who are not from Cincinnati Cincinnati is spelled C-I-N C-I-N-N-A-T-I uh, we have no episode next week however because of the superb owl I mean the Super Bowl the Bengals, the Cincinnati Bengals made it to the Super Bowl and we are very, very, very proud. So everyone will be watching the game and we won't be recording a show. But we'll have more exciting shows later this winter and into the spring. Christina would like me to note that the Kickstarter goals will be mail shipping out later this week. And those of you that got sketches will be getting them a little bit later than that. Also, we are doing a third installment of the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities Comics Anthology, and it's open for submissions right now. We have the topics for this anthology, and they are the Darby Lee Cemetery in Mount St. Joseph, Ohio, Witch Hill in Alexandria, Kentucky, the Delta Queen's Resident Ghost, the Trenton Hatchet Man of Trenton, Ohio, the Oxford Light, and the Allendale Tra Train Tunnel in Ellesmere, Kentucky. If you or anyone you know is interested in participating in this year's comics anthology, proposals have been open since January 19th, and they run until February 28th, 2022. We're looking for those of you who are an artist and writer or an artist and writer team and have a connection to the Cincinnati metro area, that being Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, Southern Indiana, or the Southwest portion of Ohio. Each proposal should be a comic for a comic that is between three to six pages in length with characters, settings, and a plot summary sent over to us. Sample art is also extremely helpful. I appreciate it a lot. And please also link your social media accounts on the portfolio. Submissions should also be PG-13 or lighter with no not-safe-for-work not content, body horror, or gore. This is a paid position, and we pay competitive page rates. You can find propos proposal submissions on our website, cincycuriosities.com. And our final bit of show news is that you can hear me, Kat, hi, speak at the University of Cincinnati Coming University on March 15th, 
2022 from 6.30 to 8 p.m. That cost is $39, but it includes a copy each of issue one and two of the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities. And this is an opportunity for you to hear me talk about how we find the ghost stories, the research that we do to uh basically doing the show and also for the anthology, the research that goes into it, how I find the ghost stories and um, the process, the actual artistic process of writing and then turning them into graphic novels. So please join us. There's information in the show notes, I am sure. Also, please wear a mask during the class because I have a yet to be vaccinated toddler at home and I will probably be masking up as well. So thank you for hanging in. That was a lot of show news, but we have a lot going on. Very excited about that. So we have a very excellent guest joining us tonight, talking about all things archaeology, and that is Bob Genheimer. Bob is, is the George Ravishel Curator of Archaeology at the Cincinnati Museum Center. He has been doing archaeology of the Cincinnati area since 1974 and holds both a BA and an MA in anthropology from the University of Cincinnati. He was an archaeologist with Miami Purchase Association, now the Cincinnati Preservation Association from 1977 to 1986. He began with the Cincinnati Museum Center in 1990. His interests include pre-contact ceramics and anything related to historical archaeology. Oh, but he brought us a wonderful story tonight. So all of you, will you come back? Come back and join me on this show. Unmute yourselves. Oh, man. Yeah. As soon as Christina said, hey, I have a friend who knows archaeology and works for the Cincinnati Museum Center, I was all ears and curiosity. So what story did you bring to share with us tonight? Well, I've, I have sort of a bizarre story tonight, and it's one that... Uh, I've been obsessed with uh, two major uh, times in my career. Once uh, about 41 years ago when we found this stuff. And then about 10 years ago when uh, newspapers were digitally archived and we could look this stuff up mm -hmm. and we found all, all this other stuff and I came back to it again. And it's, it's absolutely a wonderful story that weds history and archeology, span crime, mental illness, anything you can think of is in this story. And we took us years to figure it out as much as we could, but it's actually great. Oh yeah, it, it's, I love trash pits. Like uh, I know we talked about before the show, I am a former anthropology, I only have a BA in it though, an anthropologist, but trash pits were always something we talked about in urban archeology span and uh, how they tell the tales of the people who've lived in the cities before now and just kind of their everyday lives. So for our listeners who do not know what urban archaeology or what trash pits or privy shafts are, could you explain to them? Well, urban archaeology is really uh, the same as uh, prehistoric archaeology, anything else that you're, you're actually doing it within a city setting. And cities or urban areas are obviously totally different. Uh, every time a building is torn down, we... Uh, we destroy one uh, instance of history and create a new one, which mm -hmm. will be there 50 years from now for somebody else to look at. Uh, so they're, they're very dynamic sorts of areas. Uh, privy shafts are one of my favorite uh, sort of contexts. We refer to these as features. Uh, for, there's a number of reasons why privies are so fabulous uh, for anthropology. Uh, number one is they have great integrity. 
um, they're usually intact. They're lined. They're they're there. They're physical. You can go in them and dig stuff up. Um, and although they have a lot of fecal material in them, it's not really the fecal material we're interested in. Although there's a lot you can tell from that, it's the other items that get thrown into it that are really storehouses of historical knowledge. They're also stratified, which means they have layers. And archaeologists love the things with layers because you can control for time mm -hmm. and everything inside that layer has is associated with the other. So we like that. Uh, preservation is terrific. Uh, and even if even if they torn a lot out, some of these privies are so deep that the bottoms of them are still there. Uh, and one of the coolest things is associations with real people. So when you're doing prehistoric archaeology or pre-contract archaeology, you can, you can make associations with a village or a people or a culture, but not individuals. Doing urban archaeology or working with privies, you can do that if you have great historic resources in hand with it. There are also great storehouses of knowledge on health and wealth and all sorts of other things that are going on in an area. But what we're going to talk about tonight is the, it, the coolest part is what I refer to as aberrant behavior. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, what we're going to talk about here in a bit is aberrant behavior in any century, whether it's the 19th century, the 20th century, the 21st century, whatever. It, this uh, is a, a pretty cool story. And the word privy itself comes from Latin privatus. It means secret, private. The unspoken takes place inside of this. When you think about it, if you want to dispose of something, this is the place to do it in. Mm -hmm. Out of sight, out of mind. No one's going to go digging into the fecal material to find what you threw in there. Of course, they didn't take us into account 100 years later to do it. But no. So that's why they're great because in... There are other stories behind this placement story that we can also do, um, mm -hmm. but um, this one is my favorite. Yeah, I'm. I'm really curious. First, how did you find the privy? Did was there a building being torn down and they found it, and then they needed to contact resource archaeologists to look into it, or did somebody stumble into it while weeding one day? Like, how did you find it? Well, we were working uh, for the city of Cincinnati. They were um, had like a four or five block area north of City Hall mm -hmm. that they were going to uh, renovate. And uh, so we went in there to do archaeology. They paid us to go in and do archaeology first. Mm -hmm. um, the privies, uh, there are no standing structures left. There may be one or two in the whole five blocks. So they're below ground uh, and they were filled in. So the way that city lots work in Cincinnati and most cities is that their back of your properties abut each other. So on each street, when they come together, that's called privy row. Obviously you want to put an outhouse as far away from the house as possible, which means all those privies are on that back property line on either side of the lots. Mm -hmm. So they're fairly easy to find. And also the bottle collectors and other people had gone in and dug some of them. So we knew they were there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, it, it's always fun with the houses around here because I'm on the east side, but an older part of it. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably your parking pad is on top of wherever your privy was. And my neighbors are like, wow, that's disgusting, Kat. Why did you remind me of that? But here we are. So, uh, yeah, Jen and Jen and I were talking about the stratification of fecal matter earlier. And oh, gross. It, just, it preserved <laughs> really well, unless it was cloth. But... That 
We found a few scraps of cloth. So, yeah. Um, I'm looking through my questions. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, thank you, Christina, for the for the uh, stratification of this privy. We were admiring this diagram earlier. How long did it take you to actually excavate it? Uh, so the privy shaft in question, uh, let me think, maybe six weeks, five weeks, something like that. Oh, wow. It's so we, at the time, this, we, you know, we weren't really complying with OSHA regulations today. We were actually inside the shaft. Oh. oh. So uh, it, you know, so it, it's not very bright in there. You mm -hmm. have to try to add light, uh, flashlights. It's very difficult to photograph. And you are actually sitting in it while you're digging. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine, it's a circular shaft about four foot in diameter. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you're sitting on a level and you have to dig and then you scoot yourself around in a circle. And we, mm -hmm. were, we were digging in one foot levels. Okay. But we were also identifying what we call horizons or depositional horizons. Mm -hmm. So the upper part of the, this, uh, this privy shaft, it started off as brick and then it quickly, uh, there's an image here where you can see it switches to uh, limestone. Okay. As it goes down, this is dry laid limestone, no mortar. Mm -hmm. um, and the upper parts of these privies are pretty much uh, ash, combustion byproducts from furnace, fireplace, that sort of thing. They had to get rid of that. And they had to fill these privies up by city ordinances. So they did that. Um, early, about the first half of this one, is fecal material. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, the police material that we're going to talk about is in the very top of that fecal material right when they abandoned it as a toilet okay and then use um, it as as a dump for household trash or mm -hmm. uh, fireplace ash and that and that so mm. um it's we you know we wore safety lines very difficult photograph because of moisture and fog in it using the flash in there is almost impossible mm -hmm. so yeah. um that that's the it, it empties out in the sandy outwash because downtown cincinnati is on an outwash terrace Mm -hmm. So these features are actually dynamic. Solid remains, liquids pass through. Mm -hmm. Which means that it's not really great for preservation because it's dynamic, because mm -hmm. it's changing. Mm -hmm. um, but some things preserve well. Metals do not. Metals corrode. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Yeah. So uh, cloth tends to deteriorate, as we'll see. Mm -hmm. uh, so... When you started excavating, you had no idea about the story that would be uncovered. No, you just started pulling no. um, artifacts out, like yeah. plates and bottles and, and yes. buttons and scraps of clothing as you're going down. I, I like you said, after all of the household remains. So, when did you start piecing together the story? Well, most of it was a little bit later. Uh, I don't, if I remember, I don't think we really knew what was going on while we were actually digging it in the shaft. It's kind of dark. We knew we were pulling stuff out. Uh, we saw some interesting stuff. But when we got back in the lab with it and started pulling it out, that's when we we started to realize that we had something bizarre here. And that, you know, it took us a little bit. We have uh, what's left of a of a policeman's uniform mm -hmm. in this frame shaft. Um, including all sorts of stuff, you know, and I can run through the 
some of the highlights of the pieces that came out of the police material. If you want me to do that, I can oh, do yeah. that. Like there were so many things, so many treasures. Yeah. yeah. So one of the first things we came up with was this um, uh, metal waist buckle. It's a two-piece buckle that comes together. Mm-hmm. So a little disc goes inside of a little sleeve. Oh, there uh, we go. Thank you, Christina. A, yeah, and uh, they it says they say since they place on them, or <clears throat> the one we had had a P in the center for police. Mm-hmm. Um, that was intact. Um, no leather belt, but we found uh, that also. Uh, a double tube police whistle with a chain. Oh, wow. Uh, and these were uh, the chain. When you see the, the frock coats, whether it's single or double breasted, the chain is going in between the buttons and the whistle mm-hmm. is inside. So it's a two tone whistle. One whistle means I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. The other whistle means I'm in, I'm really in trouble. Um, so maybe this is before radios or mm-hmm. phones. It's, it's a totally different world. Uh, policemen were pretty much on their own at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What else? Uh, 27 gilt buttons. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of buttons. It is. Uh, we discussed this earlier in that some of them have a P on them for police. Uh, some of them have the, the seal of the city of Cincinnati that says junk to juvenile on it. Mm-hmm. Every time you see a city of Cincinnati car, you'll see that seal on the side of the car uh we found uh 12 unfired pistol rounds both 32 and 38 caliber uh, a uh, pearl handled derringer we'll, we'll get to in a second which yeah. is 41 caliber and it's loaded oh my uh, a bronze medal for sons of veterans um uh, and we'll get to what how that plays into this in a moment Mm-hmm. Um, lots of cloth uniform scraps that were sort of bluish black, but very desiccated. They would just sort of break apart in your hands into dust. Okay. Uh, so they didn't like the atmosphere in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, two call box keys. If any of you guys are old enough to remember policemen, I am that they used to go to call boxes to make phones, phone calls yeah. before we had uh, radios or, or cell phones. Mm-hmm. We found these keys. Um, uh, a sword pin uh, was in there. Um, several other buttons that were not city of Cincinnati, but were from elsewhere, which suggested to us that this was possibly a single man who was doing his own work on his uniform and was mm. getting buttons wherever he could. Um, and two badly corroded badges, which is unfortunate, but uh, we're pretty sure that there are police badges, but it's very thin metal and they were chrome plated and there was really nothing mm-hmm. left of them that we could tell what was on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of stuff. The only things that we were missing um, really are the police hat and the night sticker day stick that they carry. Okay. Um, wow. Everything else seemed to be there. Um, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, did you? I know you said the badges were too corroded, but were you able to pull the individual's name from any of the artifacts? Well, that's where we got stuck in this process when we started getting obsessed with it because at the time, this is back in um, 1981, we, we thought, well, who is this policeman? 
then how do we find out? So since we didn't know his name, one could sit down and take an entire city directory or four or five years of city directories and read them from cover to cover. And five months later, you may know his name. Mm-hmm. We were not really willing to do that. No, that's um, really, that's painstaking. Yeah. yeah. So we, uh, we had a lot of stuff that was badly corroded. We started cleaning stuff and lo and behold, we uh, were cleaning the corrosion off of this one piece and it turned out to be a rubber stamp. They had metal wood and rubber on it and we cleaned it some more. And the only thing remaining on the stamp was his last name. Oh, wow. And his name was Dustin, D-U-S-T-I-N. So we immediately went to the city directories. There he was at that address on Chestnut Street. Hmm. And we could follow him backwards and forwards. He had been listed as a night watchman when he lived at this house. Prior to that, he was listed as a policeman. Okay. uh, uh, For about seven or eight years earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was a single man. He lived in the house that had the two families in the house. He was a boarder. Okay. 36 years old, single, you know, so Mm -hmm. we were correct. He was a single man. Mm -hmm. Um, So we finally knew his name and who he was. Uh, And then the story got more interesting um, because we thought, well, let's go to the Cincinnati Police Museum. Let's go to the police archivists. Mm-hmm. And we went to them and they said, oh, let, let us let us look this up. And they came back to us the next day and they said, we don't know how to break this to you, but this guy was never a Cincinnati policeman. Never. <gasps> that is really interesting. Yeah. We said, well, what do you mean? He says he's not in any of the roles. He doesn't show up. We actually looked at the city of Cincinnati annual reports for all those years. And they, in the end of those reports, they actually list the policemen. In many years, they have photographs of them. Mm-hmm. He's never there. So we thought, what is going on? So we finally found, this was back in 81 or 82, we found his father's obituary, September of uh, 1899. And in it, his father said that the obituary said one of his sons was a merchant's policeman or one of his children. Um, So he was not really a Cincinnati policeman. He was a merchant's policeman but he had an identical uniform. Uh, and that may have been common. We don't know. Unfortunately, hmm. we couldn't find any merchant's police records, uh, but now we knew who he was. How but, is that different than a Cincinnati police officer? The merchant's police? Mm-hmm. Well, they were essentially appointed by the mayor and they would guard businesses or private residences. Okay. So they would have territories and stuff that they would work. Uh, like a security guard. Yeah. And the territory that our Charles is in was in Avondale. Hmm. Okay. So, um, but we'll get to that um, in a second. So, but okay. when we looked at the obituary, Charles's father is a really prominent person. He was a Civil War hero. His name was Captain E. Potter Dustin. Okay. Although when we found it, I don't think he ever achieved the role of captain in the civil war, but maybe in the Ohio national guard or something later, but he was also a very prominent defense attorney. He was the number one defense attorney for people, uh, for murder trials and that sort of stuff. He was well known and he apparently died of what seems to be a stroke. I think they called it paralysis of the brain. Yeah. And, uh, 
So it, it, when you think about the dynamics of a father who's a prominent attorney and a hero and a son who is um, a policeman, but maybe not a real policeman, but a merchant's policeman, mm-hmm. it may be that there was a dynamic between these two that um, Charles wanted to please his father. So, and then his father dies. Mm-hmm. So, at a rather young age, if I remember the article. Um, yeah, he wasn't that old, but yeah. um, and it appears to be a stroke, but yeah, yeah. So, up until this point, when we were looking at all this information, um, it appears to be a somewhat of a normal family. Mm-hmm. Prominent father, his father was on a had married twice. First wife died, uh, and they had a couple kids. I think two of them actually died young from cholera, other things. But that's not that uncommon in the nineteenth century. No, it wasn't. So it seemed to be nothing out of the ordinary uh, until his father died. Mm-hmm. And then, as we'll get to in a second, it seems that Charles becomes unhinged. Yeah, so that, that's a good good way to put it. Yeah. There were more articles about him. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and if you want, I can go through those. Oh, yes, please. This it, is it's, a, it's this a very poor guy. Story. And it I remember may- when we found these, when they were brought to us the first time, I was just, like, pickled. It was like, you know, your your favorite TV series and it ended. Oh, but here's four more episodes and they're going to tell you everything you wanted to know. It's like incredible. So um, the violence begins in 1900. Um, so approximately eight months after his father's death. Okay. <laughs> Charles is on his route in Avondale. He runs into another policeman who he doesn't like actually doesn't like this policeman's nephew, and they get into an altercation. And this over... is an actual policeman, not a merchant. No, they're both merchants, merchants, policemen. Okay. But, okay. Um, but let me just make this point because the policeman he has the altercation with is the private security guard of the mayor of Cincinnati, Julius Fleshman. Oh, my. So he didn't just pick anyone to have a fight with. He picked, you know, an important policeman to do this with. Mm-hmm. He got into an altercation on and off a streetcar. Uh, Charles pulls a gun on him. Actually, in the police car, shoots this other officer, but the bullet just grazes him and gets lodged in the guy's trouser. Wow. Off the streetcar again. Finally, uh, the streetcar operator and some other people subdue him and the police come. Um, and thus he, Charles tried to shoot him again. My goodness. Um, so anyway, he loses, Charles loses his police powers, at least temporarily. And also from what I understand his authority to carry a gun. Okay. And is put in jail. We don't know how long. Obviously there's some anger or some issue going on here. Yeah, he's he's not processing the grief in a healthy way. No, he's not. Uh, and then there's sort of a hiatus between the next episode 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about 19 months after the first, or at least that's all we know. Obviously, we're relying on newspaper articles. Right, right. And if he did something that didn't make the newspaper well, we're not going to know. Right. Um, so he's back as a policeman, back in Avondale. Same thing happens again. This time he confronts the nephew of the first policeman he shot, who he, who his intended target was in the first place. Oh, they get in an altercation. Charles pulls a pistol on him. In full, full public view, people can see it. And, you know, they subdue him. And he, you know, and he again, he, he runs away this time and they get an arrest warrant out for him. Right. So the third episode occurs the very next day. Oh, um, quick. Well, because they're looking for him. That's true. And they find him in some stables uh, somewhere, I believe, in Over the Rhine. Okay. And the arresting officer comes in. Charles pulls a gun on the arresting officer. And Brave. But, but the officer was able to put his hand between the hammer. Okay. The yeah. Prevented from shooting. Uh, and then he got with a with, you know, one of these lead filled things, and they hit him in the top of the head. And Dustin went down. Then he got back up and tried to shoot the officer again. He was subdued, and he also Charles also tore up the arrest warrant, which is an offense. Uh huh. Tore it up in his face. Uh, so at this point, he was arrested and taken in. So he was charged with uh, carrying a concealed weapon, resisting arrest. Contempt of court for uh, for not he couldn't allow, couldn't carry a gun, tearing mm-hmm. up the arrest warrant, and assault and battery from the day before. Oh my! So that's quite that's a, a list. That's a pretty long list. But he's finally in custody. He never gets out of custody again from that point uh, because I think by then they have figured out that something's not right here. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so. All this, just when you when you look at it, this is not what we expected. We thought somebody just retired and threw their uniform in here. But this is an act of concealment. Mm-hmm. A serious act of concealment of what's there. We believe that the uniform, all this was thrown in between the last two episodes. Remember, it was the next day. Mm-hmm. We think he went home, threw his uniform out into the privy, Um and and then you know was in civilian clothes and tried to hide but they found them uh so anyway so and then now he's they want to know what's wrong with this guy right that's uh, a lot of aggression in a short amount of time yeah for a placement it's, i mean it's not a normal uh civilian mm-hmm. so he gets a hearing at what they call an insanity court mm-hmm. <laughs> which i thought in some cases might be redundant but um, they found him to be not insane. But a doctor said he was you know, probably too dangerous to be at large in the public. So he was sentenced to 18 months at the Cincinnati workhouse. Okay. Which he started his sentence. And then 10 months into the sentence, for some reason, we don't know why, the probate court transferred him to Longview State Hospital for the mentally insane. Hmm. Huh. Um, where he's 
remained from 1903 to 1933, died at 68 years old, and is, and is buried at Longview. Okay. Hmm. So he died of a coronary, uh, uh, as Dexter says, due to hypotension and senile dementia. Oh, okay. So, um, so the, the story just, you know, it's it's a sad story in many ways, mm-hmm. but it's an interesting story because of the way we were able to piece all this together. And remember, this is this is 120 years ago that this happened. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and it's pretty difficult to do some of that. Um, so there are other questions, but I'll let you ask them. <laughs> Well, one of the things that strikes me is he could have thrown the clothing into the privy, but it also could have been somebody that he was boarding with. And that's something we really won't ever know. You mean he may have left it there? Yeah, he may have left it there and was just such a devious person that whomever he was boarding with was like, no, we don't want any of this and just threw it into the um, privy shaft. It's just, I'm just thinking of different scenarios in my head. Jen, do yeah. you have any questions? Uh, <laughs> so good. many. I Yeah. There's a lot to take in. This is a complicated story. It feels well, like one of those stories that normally would never have been told without just Yeah. We just happen to go through a privy shop. Yeah. Right. Do you think he might have been like bipolar or something and he was just kind of having a mental break from the grief of his father, father's death? It's just my guess that that seems that may have been a trigger. Yeah. But I'm I'm not a mental health person, so I don't know. I don't want to make the sort of judgments. I don't think the archaeology or the history is going to tell us that. Yeah. I'm just offering an op as as a possibility. Or maybe he had a mental break in the workhouse, and that's why he was transferred to Longview. Or it may, it, mm-hmm. obviously something happened in the workhouse to yeah mm-hmm. to force that transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, but we looked in the records and we couldn't couldn't find anything. We couldn't find that at all. Um, so, but we don't know. Um, so the question is, is he mentally ill? Is it some sort of an anger problem? Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're not sure. Um, right. But he certainly wasn't a trusting person at, at when you look at what's going on. And as far as a lodger throwing it in, I, it's possible, although I'm not sure why they would throw a loaded gun in there. Um, if I had a gun, I wouldn't know what to do with it, and I would throw no. it away as soon as possible, too. Um, it's, go it's, ahead. It's, oh, I was going to say, it seems like there was clearly something wrong with him, um, or they would have not committed him for the rest of his life. I mean, it's right. one thing to go to the workhouse for, for two, did you say it was 10 months? But he was supposed to be there for a year. 18 and months. then, or sorry, 18 months. And then partway through that sentence, he ends up being committed for the rest of his life. Um, back then when you were committed, was that something that the state did or was it perhaps family that committed you or was it both? I don't know, Chris. I don't know how to answer that. Uh, and we also, and I mean, I'm also aware that not everybody in Longview was mentally ill. There were other reasons why they could have been in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that had sort of medical issues that could cause 
uh, aberrant behavior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't want to suggest that he's def- definitely mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Um, he just uh, was, I, I like the term unhinged because he seems that's what was going on. But um, mm-hmm. but we don't know enough. I always wish I had a photograph of Charles. And then I think about it, I think, no, I don't want a photograph of him because I have a mental image in, in my mind and I don't want to ruin that, you know. Yeah. yeah. I turn you- out... I, He'll be some handsome guy that I can't put this together with, you know. <laughs> well, it, it makes me wonder if he had some sort of injury that caused him, or perhaps lead poisoning, or somehow uh, he got yeah, cracked some... over the head with a lead stick. I think that's pretty significant. Well, that's that, that could have been. I mean, that could have been what started it off. Um, you know, perhaps brain damage. You know, brain bleeds, and maybe it caused enough damage that. He never was normal again or something like or that. Or he could have just been a jerk. Or no, syphilis. <laughs> Do you ever, Bob, go down like a conspiracy theory rabbit hole with it? Like since it was, you know, the mayor's coachman or whatever. Well, <laughs> Maybe I mean, they just never wanted to let him back out because of a political reason or. <laughs> the mayor actually signed and the chief of police signed the arrest warrant for him. Uh, <clears throat> the one thing you have to consider, and you guys do since any history, is this. This is the era of Boss Cox, mm-hmm. and um, you know nobody had any position of political power in Cincinnati without his approval. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one can assume that Julius Fleshman became mayor because Boss Cox wanted him to become mayor. Mm-hmm. I can't say that for sure. So it's possible if the mayor appoints. That was one of my first thing. The mayor appoints these mercantile policemen, and 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 what was he doing that led to all this? But the the stories in the newspaper are not that salacious. I mean, they're more of a, just an anger sorts of thing, and I don't mm-hmm. know that it has anything to do with the power um, base in the city of Cincinnati. So it, it yeah. does make me wonder if Boss Cox knew his father. If there was any type of relationship, good or bad, but also, and I'm not sure if we covered it, if he, um, Dustin ever tried to be on the police force and got rejected and how long did he have any training whatsoever before becoming a mercantile police officer? And what was his history beforehand? Like, do we have any of that information maybe from his family or, um, was no. he local? Is there a high school yearbook? Were they doing yearbooks back then? <laughs> I don't think so. No, I don't think that far back. Yeah, did people, <laughs> but, I mean, there were public school systems that weren't in place at that point, were they? True. I mean, um, I mean, it seems it like... It depends on the location. I don't know about Cincinnati. I, I mean, it, it seems like there was something interesting going on. Like, maybe he was a heavy or something. Maybe he was... Uh, carrying out, like you said, orders that he was told, uh, but he was maybe disposed of because he knew something or something. We were totally making this up. I mean, it's yeah. kind of like yeah, there's a lot of speculation fiction. right now. Yeah, yeah, we're speculating without any facts. <laughs> but it's really interesting. Um, how did Cincinnati respond to this? Is there any record of how people responded to this man just having these outbursts and going after the police? Well, the first newspaper article is sort of frivolous, Christina. If you had looked at it, um, 
it talks about, oh, what's going on here? Nothing much, just a row between friends or something. Mm -hmm. You know, your friends shoot you all the time when you have a row, correct? So uh, both on and off of a streetcar. Yeah. And it's like, that's just craziness. Um, yeah. Really, what, yeah the what, was, what was the environment of Cincinnati where this can just be considered a ho hum row? <laughs> yeah. I think th this is like fodder for newspapers because yeah. the police who are supposed to protect you are shooting each other. Mm -hmm. You know, this would have been a, a great story. And I love mm -hmm. the headlines. I mean, they had. Headline, could you imagine being a headline writer in the 19th century? Look at that. <laughs> I mean, it's that would like, be awesome. It's sound bites all the way down. There's no real information until you get to the story, but nope. it's to draw you in. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, clickbait. Yeah, it's so different than today. Like clickbait, yeah. you know, think for, you know, what is it? Find out here what food's not to eat. Yeah. Oh, man. When you read old articles, the way they would, so especially yeah. crime, mm -hmm. they are so slanted. Yes, it is ridiculous. <laughs> well, yes. when you think about it, that's the excitement you had. You couldn't watch, well, you yeah. know, Discovery yeah. Plus. <laughs> Some well, of no, those are still pretty slanted. <laughs> those, it's those like the the Penny Dreadful things that yeah. they used to do back in the day in the UK. Yeah, that's how that they was, got their entertainment. Yeah, no, it makes me wonder a little bit if maybe he there was alcoholism involved as well. Mm. Um. Well, you, you found know. a bunch of bottles in that. Well, that's that, that was my well, thought when I What type those. of bottles were they? Mm -hmm. Well, there was, um, I'm trying to remember, 42 schnapps bottles. Oh. In and around there. But I can't, say that, I can't say that's Charles. That's true. There's the seven people living in this house all using the toilet. <laughs> so and I put I, I disposing of their bottles there as well. Yeah. So schnapps <laughs> is one of those. That's another one of these stories. So. If you don't want somebody to know you're drinking, you do it in the outhouse. <laughs> um, you don't leave clinking bottles around in your no. apartment. So 42 bottles of schnapps, which was considered medicinal, but a high alcohol content. Somebody mm. really loved their schnapps. Yeah. I can't <laughs> say it's him. Yeah. Right. Made him feel good. Uh, How far did, did you go all the way to the bottom yes. of the privy? 20 foot deep. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. And is this the only one you've excavated or have you done more? No, in that project, we did uh, three. Wow. Okay. Including the privy behind the Betts house, uh, which was a, a, a double seater. Oh. So, Fancy. Yeah. To what? Did it a have a partition? So <laughs> One would hope. <laughs> The Betts, Betts House is the oldest house in the city of Cincinnati, still standing in its original location, oh, 1804. Wow. wow. I didn't but, realize it was that. It's been there that long. Well, just the front part of it. Oh. If you look, although there used to be a house right next to it, and the house next to it is on the city grid. It's not there anymore. And so the Betts House isn't on the city grid. So the distance between the two houses in the front is like this. Mm-hmm. But in the back, when you open a window, there's a brick wall half an inch from you because they're not <laughs> on the same grid. Right. Oh. So, but that house um, has Procter and Gamble connections. Okay. Do you uh, find I, anything crazy weird in there? Or no, just... I think William, if I remember, William Proctor bought it for James Gamble's daughter or something at the house. Mm hmm. Yeah. So it's an interesting sort of a side story, but 
Uh, but that was a block to the north of where this one was. And if you've never been to the Betts House, please go. It's a great place. Where yeah. is it? Uh, it sounds it's like on a... Clark. I think it's 416 Clark. Uh-huh. So we've got uh, a couple places there. Mm-hmm. Um, where is Clark? I'm, is that downtown or? Um, if you know, you know where um, the Jewish Cemetery is behind Music Hall? Yes. Th- th- I believe that's Clark. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because there's a couple old houses that are still, I mean, you know, now have you gotten, you know, because of the nature of our show, we're going to, have you gotten to do any excavation at Music Hall where they keep finding skeletons? Is that a place you've ever gotten to explore? In no, your... I have not. You mean Washington Park there? and then Yeah, yeah. Because every time they build something, they find more skeletons. And I wondered if you had, no, had, had I, ever I been involved in anything. No, we weren't involved in that. There was a consulting firm in downtown Cincinnati who did most of that work. Uh, there might be probably some interesting stories in that. I want to talk to them, but there's, um, but we didn't do that. The other thing that's interesting about this Dustin thing we didn't mention is the gun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that gun, and I included a. Uh, there, there's an image of the gun as we found it, and there's an image of what the gun would actually uh, looks like today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can see the lead, the white is lead, it's still loaded. Single shot Derringer. Mm-hmm. This has a turn barrel on it. So if you shoot it and want to reload, you have to press a button, turn the barrel, eject the shell, put a new cartridge in, turn the barrel back. So it's pretty, there's a, so an image of it. So um, it's called a Southerner Derringer, although they were made uh, in the North. Um, it was a very popular gun, very small. It's not that big, fits nicely in your hand. Um, it's a, this is a, a very personal weapon. Mm-hmm. So it's high caliber, low grain. Uh, it's got a, got a big bullet but it doesn't have a lot of power, but it doesn't need to. It's designed for somewhere between three and five feet. Wow. So some people refer to these as like the poker game gun, you know, that uh, sort of thing. Yeah. And get so, up close and personal. Yeah. So it's not a, it's an interesting gun to have because before that, we know he probably had a revolver mm-hmm. uh, because he, he, you know, tried to shoot again. Mm-hmm. without reloading so um this this gun is a little bit different um it doesn't really allow for if you don't get something on the first shot you may be in trouble could you trace this gun back to him or no. just to the location it's just the location but it well, was we, it found with um not the one that's on the screen right now because is that a recreation just a, that's an actual photo of one of, of a Southern Derringer. Yeah, but the one that... Um, th- no, that's a, the actual... The other one, the image is the actual gun. Yeah, that's the actual mm-hmm. one that was found along with the other artifacts from yeah. the police uniform and the buttons and everything. Yeah, it's missing its yeah. barrel, interestingly yeah. enough. Although mm-hmm. maybe it was there and it just had corroded away. Mm-hmm. But the pearl handle is still very obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, so you can see what are the inches on there. It's no more than... Um, not even it's three and a half inches. Yeah, the barrel would make it a little longer. It's not a big gun, right? Wow. It kind of reminds me of the guns that women were picking up in London with mm-hmm. Jack the Ripper. 
like there was a few different uh, panics, of course, but women were picking up these single shot guns that remind me like of this da uh, Derringer that you are showing on screen. Mm -hmm. Just because, just in case they were assaulted, then they had a one shot and they could run afterwards. Yes. And they were keeping it in their uh, purses and they were small enough to do that. Yes, yes. And remember also that this is at least three guns that Dustin had. Mm -hmm. Wow. His first gun was taken away. Right. And his the the, ga the gun when he was finally arrested was taken away. Mm -hmm. This is another one. Yeah. So he has he he he's familiar with firearms. Yeah. Wow. But the policemen weren't issued firearms um, back then. It wasn't until the end of the first decade of the twentieth century that Cincinnati police were actually issued firearms. Okay. So they um, had to supply them themselves and purchase them themselves. Uh, probably, and I'm not sure whether it was one of these things where it was just a wink wink you can carry one or mm -hmm. if it was encouraged i don't know mm. um but I'm, I'm sure it was quite common particularly for night watchmen mm -hmm. probably carried a firearm mm -hmm. it was probably dangerous well they're running into those body snatchers that were running around at night as well oh, yeah we did an episode about body snatchers just a couple yes. of weeks ago yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, it sounds like, like late, there's running alcohol. Yeah, it <laughs> well, sounds like that. late 1800s, early 1900s, Cincinnati was an interesting place. Though I will say the body snatchers would not be happening because that ended about 20 years before this incident. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. yeah I just funny. remembered from the show. But. So this is a little off topic, but Kat, did you post something uh, the other day about... Uh, the area in front of the museum center is a potter's field. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, is, just are, learned about that recently. Like where the fountain and everything is yeah. was a potter's field at one point. What do you know of that, Bob? Yeah. Are there still um, bodies there <laughs> or bones? I don't know that much about that. It was a park. Okay. Uh, and that's of course where the very first baseball if you want to call it a park more mm -hmm. of a field yeah was there on the side of the where the fountain is okay but i'm not i don't know anything about that doesn't mean it doesn't exist but i don't know that I mean our potter's fields were all over the place so yeah 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 i can look up the article real quick but yeah i was just i i'm like how did we not know that <laughs> Well, that just you shows know. you how quickly things are forgotten. I mean, I think yeah. that's one of the things that's so interesting about, you know, the work that you do is just how even recent history. I mean, when you think about something that happened 100 years ago, that wasn't that long. But if you yeah. have to research about that, it's amazing how much is lost. Yeah. Right. Um, and we would be lost without the newspaper archives. Exactly. Really? Yeah. They, they made the story. Yeah. You know, they put the icing on the cake on this story. They really did. And. And I searched and searched again, and I've searched more and hoping to find something that I missed. Yeah. Um, no. But so far, I have not. That's Did something he, we should. I'm assuming on. he didn't have any children. Uh, no. Okay. Well, that's something we could definitely ask, like Greg Hand or ask uh, Jeff Cease to look into, too. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Bob, Jen works for uh, the Cincinnati Inquirer. 
Yes. Oh. And uh, we've had uh, <laughs> Jeff Seesaw several times. He wrote my story in our comic anthology as well. And he does a lot of history, historical stories for the Inquirer about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. You yeah. know, so this might be something. As a matter of fact, his most recent article what, that he had, was it last weekend? Was about a heist of Rembrandt paintings in the 70s. Oh, uh-huh. I mean, lots of interesting gems in Cincinnati history. I mean, I, I wish I had a time machine to see Cincinnati around the turn of the century because it seems like it would have been a very interesting place to walk around. Yeah, if you if you ever read, sat down and read the newspapers, which is a mistake if you just sit in there in, in on microfilm and start reading the newspapers because whatever you were intended to do won't happen. Because nope. <laughs> uh, like one day I got there and I was reading people used to leave little notes about I saw you on the streetcar and I smiled at you and I just want to let you know and whatever. And there'd be like, like personals. Yeah. Yeah. Like 50 of them yeah. from men and women. That was how they would meet. Yeah. It was sort of text, but not direct. And you had yeah. to get the paper the next day and see if this woman wow. who with you. And I thought, this, this is absolutely wonderful. Do you remember uh, uh, what was that movie with Madonna in the eighties? Suddenly seeking Susan, or yeah, 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 uh, yeah, desperate, yeah. desperately seeking Susan. Susan. Yeah, um, yeah. I would when I was interviewed for the Enquirer. Almost, you know, it's been a long time. Um, they took me on a tour of the newsroom, and when I saw the uh, photo archives, I'm like. I want to spend all of my time in there. <laughs> and I, when I was in the newsroom, I'm not in the newsroom anymore, but when I was there, part of my job was to scan those in. So I did get to go through quite a bit of the photos, but didn't, didn't even touch half of what was there. And I can only imagine what else is there and things have gone missing over the years, but it's incredibly hard, um, you know, I mean, that's one reason it's so nice to have the resource like the public library, mm -hmm. because a lot of times when these private entities, and we've talked about this before, are doing the archiving, when whoever is funding them goes away, then you lose that archive unless somebody else takes it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's one thing that's so valuable about, you know, say, our, any kind of archival work done by the library or the or the newspaper or the museum center, that's a way to, you know, keep track of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The know. museum center has really exquisite archives as well. They the do. fact that we have um, a, a lot of this since I post stuff and some other. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're, uh, we have terrific archives, both business archives, personal archives. Mm -hmm. um, there's a ton of it. And, you know, People don't appreciate them until they want something, and then there it is, you know. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, Bob, a couple of times I've been on a tour of the archives there, and it was through work. But is that kind of thing open to the public, or no? Um, you might be able to schedule a tour with COVID. Who knows? Right, right. Um, but we, yeah. So most of it is in our building. So we're not not actually at Union Terminal. Mm-hmm. We're at a um, at at the corner of Fifth and Guest. We have a collections mm -hmm. facility there. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's, with the big mammoths in front of it, right? Uh, Is that that place. Yes. yes. Okay, I've been there too. It's okay. really cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the building I work in. Okay. Yeah, it's a great building. 
How do you ever get to just free roam around and look at stuff? Or no. is that a no no? <laughs> we only have access to our own collections. You know, or yeah. like, we'd never be getting anything done, you know. Right. Yeah, well, that's true. So, I mean, I didn't want to leave that tour. No. It was so cool. The stuff that was that's there. It's just. I'm picturing the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark with all the boxes. <laughs> Better well lit. More well, yeah. But there, yeah. there is a room, right, with all the creepy stuff in the jars? <laughs> yeah, there the is. far side room we call it, yes. Yeah. What's it called? We call it the far side room or the, uh, the far side room. Uh, the dead oh animals in jars room. Uh -huh. yeah. how, can we, how can you let our sketching group in there to draw that? <laughs> wow. <laughs> You make the request, Christina, and I'll see what we can do. Oh, oh I mean, that wow. sounds like that would be really exciting. We're always looking for interesting places. Well, we we just we sketch at the museum center a lot. We've mm -hmm. yeah, we've I told you, you did the dinosaurs recently. Yeah. I know I've, we've mm -hmm. done them a couple of times. It's it's a it's a great location to for the urban sketchers to go to. Uh, you know, we go to the zoo a lot, and that's a great out. But during the winter, obviously, it's much more difficult to find. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I've heard that the, you have very extensive back room collections and stuff. And that's, and, you know, one of the things that's really interesting in the museum center beyond the dinosaur bones, I think are the old models of the city and the old history that the city's gone through. Um, mm -hmm. and that's one thing we talk a lot about here is, is for example, the, you know, Spring Grove Cemetery being built after a cholera epidemic and that sort of thing. And, you know, that's another thing thinking about the privies and and why they had to be filled in was to prevent people from getting these diseases mm -hmm. um you know and how i mean who, what year did since i probably get proper plumbing what probably the early 1900s um so a lot of it was earlier than that but that didn't mean they actually used them mm -hmm. so they would grandfather in privies mm -hmm. so you mm -hmm. could still mm -hmm. use them but you had to have water first and once mm -hmm. water came in um, then you would, uh, you start to see indoor water closets mm -hmm. and then, but they were, the privies were still there and they were, they were filling them. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, you know, at right about at this time, 1899 is when they were probably switching to water in the house with water closets because it doesn't appear to be used as a privy again. Right. Unless it's cleaned out. Sometimes they would actually clean these out, hmm. but if sometime for fun, look at the, uh, health department's stuff in the 19th century and the annual reports about foul and offensive privies. It goes on for pages. Oh, wow. Wow. The rules and regulations and people were, you know. Well, I mean, it's life, life or death stuff. I mean, yeah. people died from yeah, they you know, sewage contamination and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, right. And now you had said you, that there was, there were thoughts about putting some of this stuff on display. Uh, it has been on display mm -hmm. um, before, uh, as Kat mentioned. It was that was a uh, really an, a, a display on urban archaeology. It went beyond. Yeah. Uh, so some of the other stuff is interesting. Is the medicines, mm -hmm. the patent proprietary medicines, which are unbelievable. The, the titles and the stuff. Uh, I mean, marketing didn't start last year in this country. It started <laughs> a long time ago. How did this, they advertise cocaine and heroin? <laughs> yes, they did. Well, I mean, they didn't actually have to. 
if the, if it had something that was addictive in it, they didn't really have to do much marketing. No, it served its no. own purpose. It yeah. would make you, it wouldn't it wouldn't solve any of your health problems, but it would make you feel better. And you, oh yeah, it. oh yeah, so, <laughs> you know. So, out of all your excavations, what is your favorite thing you have found so far? Uh, I would have to say. Um, when we were, th th this is American Indian stuff. We were in the village of Newtown, um, a couple of times where, um, these marine shell gorgets were found sort of like, uh, cereal bowl size like this, mm -hmm. they slope and they were engraved and each one was engraved, uh, with an animal. Okay. Um, uh, one of them has a a mountain lion or a panther on it, which is probably an underwater panther in that cosmology. Uh, one had a uh, possum on it. I like that. Uh, in profile around the inside. In the uh, the last one, which was found during a construction thing, was a composite animal uh, that had, uh, it was, uh, we believe, a Carolina parakeet with panther feet and a tail. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. So it, it, it birds have spindly feet, and this thing had a huge foot. And, wow. and a tail like a cat. Oh, wow. So those are, that's a, like a chimera. It's, it's a yeah. joining things together. So mm -hmm. those are pretty cool to see that. Um, but when, when we did our field school, I ran a field school out on the east side for, uh, 12 years and there's a whole bunch of stuff that was cool to find out there Work, working every day and those were trash pits hmm. most of that okay so and uh, this fabulous stuff and you know when you're looking at something that hasn't been seen in hundreds of years or a, a thousand years and it's still in very good condition and mm -hmm. um, so back then what did they do with their trash did they just bury it or burn it uh, it appears that most of it was just bare. So they would have pits in the ground for a number of reasons, uh, cooking pits, mm. uh, storage pits, storage pits for corn or something else. Mm -hmm. And when they abandoned them for their original use, they just fill them with trash because, mm. you know, there was the first law of nature. If you have a hole in the ground, you have to fill it. And that's <laughs> what they do. So, okay. And then we dig it back up. Uh, <clears throat> some of those are stratified as well. Mm. Yeah. So, but those are, you know, it's a lot harder to control for time when you're doing the prehistoric stuff. Yeah. yeah. So is this Adina or Hopewell? Later. It's what we call Fort Ancient. Oh, yeah. Okay. So late prehistoric or mm -hmm. late pre-contact. We, we tend not to use the word prehistoric anymore. Mm -hmm. um, we use uh, pre-contact. Mm -hmm. So, but those, those were enormous village sites. Enormous. Okay. And we, we also, we don't dig ancestral remains. So we try to avoid them at, if all possible. And if we encounter them, we stop what we're doing. So, so it's we, not disrespectful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have relationships with um, 15, 16 tribal partners. Yeah. Excellent. So we, uh, we have sort of codified our behavior on what we do, mm -hmm. um, which is a good thing. It should have been done a long time ago, but that's what we do today. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so, uh, I mean, it's a good thing. And our we 
it's a good thing that now we have relationships with these tribes. Yeah, and that they have input into what's happening with the artifacts that are discovered. Right. Yes. Yeah. So what else is left to discover? Is there any, um, or maybe we just don't know what's out there. You got to find it first. Well, we got to find that parakeet with cat feet first. Uh, yes. Mm. Yes. Well, it seems like probably wherever you dig, I mean, that's one thing you always hear about in Europe whenever they build something new and it's similar to the music hall situation. They find like excavations of an old city that yeah. they didn't know were there. Yeah. And then they have to stop construction and actually, you know, find out what that is. Yeah. They don't really have many of those rules here in the U S or Ohio. So really it's, it's up to the, you know, the good graces of whoever's doing the work typically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I got a family story about that. Yeah. And our listeners are just like, seriously, cat, a family story about this. <laughs> does not personally involve me but <laughs> my grandfather was an art not an archaeologist an architect and he was charged with uh, or given the opportunity to expand the ashtabula public library which he gladly did and he was out there with his um not they were just it wasn't even an excavation they had a backhoe and they were just clearing land and they dug down and they found a bone and my mom, being around seven at the time, goes down into the pit because, you know, seven-year-olds in large hole of dirt, you're going to go into it. She, without any grace, just takes out a long femur mm -hmm. and she goes, she waves it around to the team. And she's like, look, dad, I found a long bone. And my grand, according to her, my grandfather just... He, face palmed and was just like okay we're, we're gonna have to stop this for now he he was just like we're not gonna mow over whomever we've just discovered and they called in the uh some archaeologists from cleveland and they ended up ex excavating out a skeleton not full but as much as they could mm -hmm. in 1955 and then also a lot of handmade square head nails and some yeah. and some wood so they had discovered a family burial plot thankfully Aww. that was the only person found and they were able to continue on later with the expansion of the library no. but also that library is also famously haunted so yeah they disturbed some graves there <laughs> yep <laughs> sounds like it <laughs> wow well cause it's a effect. grave hmm? i said cause and effect there yeah, yeah exactly yeah. well on that on that note <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll be having you on again, Bob. It, I mean, it's interesting yeah. hearing about your your uh, because we're getting sort of the more uh, you know history of, of Cincinnati. Sort of, let's. I want. I don't want to say hidden, but it's been more forgotten. Fringe. Yeah. I like yeah. the word fringe because yeah. it's good. it's there. It's we know about it, but it doesn't get addressed nearly as often as it really should be, mm -hmm. and. Uh, yeah, it's. I love talking about this in archaeological finds in urban archaeology and just discovering the truly hidden history of Cincinnati underneath our feet. Mm -hmm. So thank you and, for joining us, Bob. Thank yes, you for having me. Anyway, thank you everyone for joining us for another wonderful episode of the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities presents the Hometown Haunts podcast. I am your host, Kat Logo, and along with me, Jen and Christina. 
And also you can catch us on social media at SinCabinetCurio on Twitter at CincyCabinetOfCuriosities on Instagram. And please send in your personal ghost encounters, hometown haunts, creepy cryptids, and fringe history from your neck of the woods to our email address at hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Hometown Haunts. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Good night and stay spooky. Bye-bye.